Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we gather to sing praises to God, to be summoned into His presence, we also uh, gather remembering our sins and that God is a holy God. Matthew 22, we hear today Jesus give us the two greatest commandments. Matthew 22, verse 37. Hear God's word. And He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Thus far the reading of God's word. In a famous passage on love, C.S. Lewis said that sometimes we think of love as not giving trouble to others. Don't bother them. But more often, love is taking trouble for others. Asking after them, going to dinner with them. Now, we should apply this to God, to loving God first. God doesn't want us to trouble him with our sins, and he doesn't want us to leave him alone either. As the psalmist says, in the morning, Lord, you will hear my voice cry out to you. So we're called to love God by studying his ways, praying for help, telling others about him. He never grows tired of any of this. And to love your neighbor, it calls for wisdom to know when it is time to leave them be and when it is time to go to them. But let's confess our sins. school when I started realizing the kinds of things I was reading, what was going on, when I noticed all the scene changes. And it was right about then that the scene changes were getting really fast in writing as well. Tom Clancy or whoever it was was writing and, and it would be one page of one scene and then flip to the next character, another scene of another page. It seemed like the, the camera was flipping faster and faster, not only in TV and such, but also in fiction writing. Well, the same format we have in the book of Acts. I've mentioned it already a bit. We see uh, back in chapter 7 and 8, the camera on Stephen, and then it flips to to Saul and and Philip in between there. Now we have another camera flip, and we are now uh, looking at Peter, who we haven't seen for quite some time, not since almost chapter uh, 4 and 5. We see Peter here, and God is giving gospel life to unclean Gentiles, and he's involving Peter in that. So Peter travels and heals. We'll uh, do our typical format here and look at uh, verse by verse, and then apply more topically at the end. Uh, So verse 32, as Peter went here and there among them all, and I'm only going to take that much first, and there's something interesting going on there. Notice that Peter is visiting the saints right? The the saints are being evangelized by others. Peter is shepherding the flock. And this applies in many different ways when you think about this. This applies to family leaders who should visit with each family member and know the state of their sheep. That's one way to apply this. It applies to pastors who should do the same thing for each church member they're accountable for. 
And Peter is not a local pastor, but he's visiting many churches, the saints, wherever they are. So the apostles, they seem to have taken on their task as if they hear that there are Christians, believers in a certain city, they'll go there and visit with them and see how they're doing. That's what the apostles are doing. Supplies to a presbytery as well. We just prayed for the 25 years of the CREC so far. Uh, churches should have some accountability beyond just themselves. Uh, we have a presiding minister of presbytery who stays in touch with all the churches in our presbytery, for example. That's what Peter's doing here. He, he's visiting these Christians, seeing how they're doing, uh, teaching them more fully in the way, you might say, as is said later in the book of Acts. So that's fascinating that we see Peter doing that. But the, the scene shifts. It's not just his uh, pastoral ministry. It's the miraculous healing that Luke focuses on in Acts. He comes to the saints on Lydda, and here's a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years and paralyzed. Now, I'm curious if the name Aeneas means anything to you. Uh, many of you are uh, uh, being educated in uh, a classical kind of foundation, and you probably know that name, Aeneas. Aeneas was not this guy specifically, but the same name, right? Aeneas was the founder of Rome. And I think that's highly significant here, that the, this name is mentioned. Uh, and uh, what's going on here is it's like Peter saying, it's, it's like Acts saying, Peter uh, comes to a man named George Washington. And he's sick and paralyzed for eight years. That's, that's the impact that this would have had on the Roman reader of the book of Acts. And I want to take a minute to think about that, because that's significant. Uh, I've been listening, I put it in the church email this week, uh, to uh, Jason Farley talk about how societies have myths and folk tales that kind of that give us our story. Right? This is the founding story. We have founding stories in our country, like George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, right? And then he says, I will not tell a lie. I did it, right? We, have, we, we read biographies of our founding fathers that speak of their energy and their industry and how much they accomplished. And we do all that because that's what we believe about our nation. We're a nation of hard workers. Of, of, it's a strong nation. It's a good nation. And so to have uh, Luke... Uh, uh, recount this story of Peter coming to a man named Aeneas, George Washington, and he's sick for eight years, paralyzed, helpless. We don't think of George Washington as paralyzed and helpless. We don't think of our country, until recently perhaps, as paralyzed and helpless. But that's exactly what God's Word is doing here. The point is that the Roman Empire is sick unto death and needs the healing of Jesus Christ. I think that's all wrapped up in that one word, Aeneas. That's all you need is to say George Washington, and you know what that means to us. That's what Aeneas meant to this reader. Only Jesus and his spirit can revive the Roman Empire. And that's what happens throughout history. That's actually what happens. So he raises Aeneas to life, and all of the residents of that area turn to the Lord. 
And then we have another account of, uh, of Tabitha or Dorcas. Uh, it's, uh, and, the, and the people around Dorcas, her friends, after she has died, they commend her good works. They show Peter all the, the, the garments that she made, the tunics, uh, and, and that's a good thing. It's good to commend Dorcas's works. Sometimes we're a bit uneasy about that. We're uneasy with eulogies or speaking well of people. We don't want to flatter the living. We don't want to glorify the dead. That's true. But Scripture here gives us a positive example of holding up believers as a model to follow. The good works of Dorcas uh, have lived on through this story. But again, the point isn't so much her good works, it's what Peter does. And what Peter does, what Luke is doing here is showing us that what Peter does is what Elijah did, is what Elisha did, is what Jesus did. He, he comes into this, this uh, woman's uh, bedroom where she lays dead and brings her back to life. A lot of the, the verbiage is the same as we see in the miracles Jesus does. Tabitha, arise just like Jesus with Jairus' daughter, for example. So the point here is that Peter has the same spirit as Jesus. Uh, that's the, uh, the point being made. Uh, you could also put it in this way. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 is a key verse uh, when you think about miracles in the book of Acts, uh, where, uh, where Paul says that the signs of an apostle have been done among you. And the point that he makes there in just one quick half sentence is to say that signs, miracles are to authenticate a new message, to certify that the apostles had authority from God to declare a new word from the Lord about Jesus being the Christ. That's what these miracles are all about. That's what they're for. Peter's not going around just doing this just to cause a sensation, not just to get popularity. He's doing it to get an audience to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. That's the point of the miracles, and that's what he does. What's also happening here is we're seeing authorized Peter and the other apostles, they hold the keys of the kingdom, to use the catechism language. They hold the keys of the kingdom to open Christ's kingdom to the Jews, back in chapter 2, Pentecost, where Peter preaches there, and to Samaritans in chapter 8, where Philip preaches. And now coming up to Gentiles, to, to Romans, Cornelius in chapter 10. And, and this message has been given to Peter and the other apostles uh, here in Acts uh, to proclaim this message. That's the point of the miracles. So uh, now that, that's not the only point, of course. There, there's also the point that what happens in a miracle like that is what the gospel does, right? It, it's literally, physically medically picturing the gospel, life back from death. So that, of course, is also being done. And the joy that comes from that, she's alive again. Or a man who can't walk for eight years, now he can walk. And the joy over that, that life being lived now in the body as it was meant to be, no longer crippled, no longer dead. That's what the gospel does. So, uh, Peter is traveling, he's healing. He's staying in Joppa, and I think there's two things going on there. Uh, one is, uh, I think they're, they're pointing out, Luke is pointing out that, that Peter is staying longer where there's more spiritual life. So, uh, there's a lot of converts here in Joppa because of what happened with Dorcas, so he stays longer because there's more work to do. 
That's one thing that's being said. Another thing, I think, is the foreshadowing of the Gentiles coming in. Uh, who do you know in the Bible who also went down to Joppa? You heard that town name before? Good trivia question for you. It's Jonah. Jonah went down to Joppa. And where was Jonah uh, supposed to go? To Nineveh, to the Gentiles, one of the few prophets that God sends to the Gentiles. And Jonah refused to go. He didn't want to go to those unclean pagan uh, Ninevites. Well, now here's Peter in Joppa. So there's one foreshadowing going on. And another one is that he's staying with a tanner. Uh, which occupation required a certain level of ceremonial uncleanness. He's working with dead animal bodies all the time. So Peter uh, is, seems to be on the edge already. He's, he's almost into ministering to the Gentiles before God even uh, brings it to him. Well, move into chapter 10. Now the, the scene shifts again, and now we start seeing God's providence at work. In Caesarea... That's also on the sea, but not in Joppa. It's quite a ways apart. You have Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort. Uh, this is a high-ranking and prominent uh, bunch of soldiers, and the centurion is a high rank. It's kind of like a, a colonel on a military base or a corporate vice president in New York City. It's that kind of person. A, he's in a position of influence. And he's also a man who fears God with all his house, so, which means he's leading his family and reverencing God too. He gives generously to the poor. He prays to God for all things. So, so don't miss the connection here. There, there, these are two ways he leads his family to fear God. They see him give and pray, right? Does your family see you give and pray like, like Cornelius did, like Dorcas did? something for parents to consider. If we want our children to grow in maturity in Christ, we need to not only teach them and correct them, we've got to show them how. And so we need to pray in front of them, give, uh, so that they see what's going on. Cornelius has a vision, and the angel says, your prayers have come up as a memorial, which is a rather interesting way to put things. Verse 4 they have ascended, actually, it says. This is very sacrificial language. I'll come back to that. But basically, the angel is saying, God has remembered your devotion. Now, Cornelius's piety isn't earning his salvation. He already has faith in the true God, which has led him to pray and to give. But now God shows Cornelius where to place his faith more specifically, which is the new thing going on here in the book of Acts, right? Uh, for everyone, Cornelius becomes one of the first to the Gentiles. Uh, so, uh, same theme in all of these. This is the reason I read as far as I did. Aeneas rises from his sickbed. Dorcas rises from death. And Cornelius's prayers have also risen. Verse 4 of chapter 10. They have ascended as a memorial to God. So what you see here is uh, the idea of sacrifice continuing. Uh, and this is an Old Testament imagery kind of thing that we're not very familiar with, so you might be wondering, what are you talking about, sacrifice? Well, the, when, the, when the Old Testament talks about sacrifices to God, it's always an ascension. It's always a sacrifice going up to God as a sweet smell. 
And that's what's happening here. So we'll read it in the commission at the end of the service. Hebrews 13, our praise is now our, the sacrifice of our lips, Hebrews says. So the New Testament, too, affirms that what we're doing when we're, when we're worshiping God like we are right now, this is a sacrifice of sorts. The animal sacrifice has stopped, of course, but it's the same idea. Your prayers have ascended to God as a memorial. So uh, the angel sends him to Peter in Joppa. Uh, I find it fascinating, and this is something that's key to the heart of God, I think. The angel does not preach the gospel to Cornelius. The angel could have preached the gospel to Cornelius, right? Just like, like, like Jesus a chapter ago knocked Saul of Tarsus off his horse, told him, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, right? That doesn't happen with Cornelius. God wants Cornelius to hear about the gospel from Peter. And that's critical. That's what God wants. God wants people telling other people about Jesus. Not just letting them wait to have a dream or something. No, we need to tell the Gentiles about Jesus. That's part of the point here in this chapter of Acts. So he sends the men, and now the camera shifts back to Peter, verse 9. He's praying up on the, the rooftop at noon. This is a common thing that they did back then. It's lunchtime, he's hungry. It's interesting that he's hungry, and then he has this vision of all the food that comes down. That There's probably something to that. But notice that Peter has never eaten unclean food. He says, no way, I can't do that. God's word says not to. Made me think of Shakespeare. There's a great scene, great line in The Merchant of Venice, which is all about a Jew interacting with Christians. And the Jew at one point says to the Christian, I will buy with you, I will sell with you, talk with you, walk with you, but I will not eat with you, drink with you, or pray with you. That was the, the Jew's creed living in Christian lands in Shakespeare's day. And that's Peter's creed as well. And this is something, this is why I read so much from uh, the Old Testament on the uh, food laws. Uh, this is not a bad thing, what Peter says. Peter has not eaten like a Gentile up to this point. The separation from Gentiles was biblical. The dietary, the, the temple laws. It was, Peter's not bragging here. He's not being a Pharisee. He's saying, you told us in your word not to eat those things, Lord. Notice again, you've got another vision where, where the person questions God, right? It happens with, with Saul of Tarsus, and then it happens with Ananias, and now it happens here again with Peter. And each time, you get confirmation. The separation from Gentiles was biblical. Now, it's true the separation from the Gentiles was made worse by prejudice and tradition. I think you see uh, some of that. And it's hard to sort all that out in the details, but something like not entering a house. I'm not sure that's in Scripture, that you couldn't enter a house. Maybe it is. But they had, they had all these extra laws that I'm not sure are actually in the Old Testament. Anyway, uh, the separation uh, was biblical. It was made worse by tradition. Uh, the separation from Gentiles uh, was meant to be a witness and a light to the Gentiles ultimately. Not a rejection of them, but it's, it makes the point fairly clearly when 
when you're uh, under the, the uh, clean, unclean laws, and you become clean, and you can't go to church the next Sunday. It's like, oh no, you got to do something first because you're unclean now. So it made the point very clearly to, to Jew and to Gentile, hey, there's ways in which you are not uh, right with God yet. That's the point. Well, so here God is introducing a change in the law, as Peter, as Hebrews 7 said. So Peter had to be converted to accept Gentiles, not converted as in saved, but he has to have his mind changed to accept Gentiles before Cornelius will be converted. And that's a similar thing to Jonah in Joppa as Peter in Joppa. They both needed to be changed and realize God's going to call some unlikely people. And you're part of that calling. So go. That's what Peter has to uh, get figured out here. And, he, and it's hard for him. Verses 17, 18, 19. He's perplexed. Uh, he's wondering about the vision. And, and the word there isn't just like, oh, how interesting that was. This, this is some new theology to think about. It, it's not like that. It's, it's like, no way. How can this, how can that be? That, it's that kind of, no way, kind of perplexed. Uh, but again, God confirms the vision, right? And the way he confirms it is by this providential meeting of Cornelius. So uh, there's a connection here, notice, between the animals that are unclean and the Gentiles who come to the house and who are asking for him, right? There's a connection there. There, there's, a, there's a symbolism between an animal that's clean and ritually appropriate to sacrifice, that's been justified, that can, that can be offered up to God and commune with God, and a creature, a person, who's unclean, who's not fit for God's presence. And so God is saying, don't call anything unclean anymore. Preach the gospel to all the nations. No longer is it all the nations need to come to Israel's God. Now it's the church needs to go out to all the nations and preach that gospel. So go, in verse 20, there's an interesting word going on there. The, without uh, doubting, you have it in some translations, or without hesitation. And the word there is discriminating or distinguishing. Don't make a distinction. Just go with them. And every religious Jew would have, would have made a distinction and said, Cornelius, Roman centurion, I can't go to your house. That, that, would, that was a non-starter. But God says, no, go with them. What, what I've called clean, you don't say is unclean. That's the huge point that Peter has to get here. So again, the Spirit is continuing to bring together unlikely people. And you'll see this in your life too. I didn't think to put this in, in, in a lot of detail, but this kind of thing is, uh, there's providence that comes into our lives in the same way. You know, we have a, a saying, small world, right? When some providence happens, you meet somebody who you knew three states over five years later, whatever it is, God will bring people together like this in your life uh, for you to speak truth to them. Uh, so, uh, the Spirit brings people together. Uh, he invites them in, verse 23, which I find it to be a little bit humorous, because Peter is a guest of Simon the Tanner, but, but, he, but he himself invites 
the Gentiles in. So there's, there's a point being made there that, you know, the typical rule of hospitality would be the guest doesn't invite people to the host's house. Yeah, that's kind of rude, right? But that's, that's overridden by the apostolic authority going on here. Simon the Tanner, I'm assuming, is a Jew because Peter's staying with him, and Peter wouldn't stay in the house of a Gentile. And so here you have Peter the Apostle saying to Simon the Tanner, we need to let these Gentiles into your house. It's, it's, there's an assertion of apostolic authority going on there that Peter is perfectly fine doing. Next morning, Peter goes with them, and we'll continue that story next time. Let's pause there now and, and um, apply a bit to our lives. And I'm thinking gospel life here. You'll see my points in the uh, bulletin outline. Gospel life welcomes accountability first. Um, Peter's visiting churches. I'm going back to that, those first few words of the text. Verse 32 of chapter 9. What must this have been like for new believers to hear of Jesus, to believe in him, never having met him, and then to meet Peter who had spent three years of his life as his closest disciple? Wow. That must have been something. So uh, I'd like to apply this a certain way today. Imagine these disciples meeting Peter and spurning him and saying, who are you to come here and tell us what to believe? Jesus is whoever we want him to be, man. Live and let live. And that's not the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ submits to his appointed teachers to the apostles, to their written word. Gospel life welcomes accountability like that. Now, I said appointed teachers on purpose. That, that applies in part, in some degree, to your church elders, for example. Now, you don't have to believe all of my opinions. That's what makes a church a cult. And we're not that. But we conform our thoughts, our actions, our desires to the word of God, to the apostolic witness to Jesus. So gospel life welcomes accountability. I want to apply this even more particularly today. We're a family-affirming church, we say, on our website here. And one word that is sometimes used for that is patriarchy. And I'm one who's comfortable sometimes in the right settings using that word. I'm, I'm a patriarchalist. <laughs> if you want to use a different word, that's fine. Uh, but, but we need to talk about that and explain some of that. We believe God wants husbands and fathers to lead in their families. And, and we try to live that out lovingly. That's what I mean by that. But much of the world, even the church, sees patriarchy as a pariah as something to run away from, something inherently abusive. I don't think that's the right way to look at it, but, uh, but I do think there's such a thing as good patriarchy and bad patriarchy, right? The, and the difference, the reason I'm bringing this up, is there's one simple rule distinguishing good from bad, and that's that gospel life welcomes accountability. Is the family leader open to questions about their leadership from other church members and from elders? Are they as open to questions and accountability as they are to wanting to assert their leadership in the home? 
Uh, if someone approaches him with a concern, does he bristle defensively as, at the attack on his authority, turn them away? Or does he welcome the opportunity to learn and maybe be corrected? A good family leader focuses more on his responsibility than on his authority. So to be a good leader in the home, in the church, in Congress, wherever, welcomes authority because that's gospel living. Welcoming Peter in to shape your faith, to, to turn you to the word of God, to conform our thoughts to it. Listening to church members and church elders, being open to how to live better. That's the goal. So that's the first thing. Gospel life welcomes accountability. Second, gospel life is open to God's leading in his word and by his spirit. Here in this section of the book of Acts, you see it several times, all these visions, right? And Philip and Saul and Peter, they all get these visions that tell them something that they thought was against what God said. And they've got to turn around and, and say, okay, God wants me to do that. So they're, there's, they're open to being led by God. But the question is, what do we do with these visions? And here I'm just going to say something outright that uh, I think is plain, but often isn't uh, said as plainly as it should be. Um, the, the one phrase we have for the book of Acts especially, but for anything in the Bible, is that the narrative is not always necessarily normative. Just because it's in the story doesn't mean it's a pattern for how we're supposed to live. Take Samson, for example, right? Samson, the way Samson gets a wife. Just because it's in the Bible, uh, or, uh, or Abraham with his uh, household, and he has several slaves in his household. Just because it's in there doesn't mean the Bible is endorsing that necessarily, right? The narrative isn't always necessarily normative for us. Another example would be Joshua, who had a special commission from God to kill all the unbelievers in Canaan, right? We, we can't just take up that same calling in the same way today. The narrative isn't normative. Uh, in Acts 9, it's the same. The apostles had a special commission from God to define the early church's teaching and life. So the Spirit actually led them to new teaching that transformed the Old Testament teaching. We may not do that today. <laughs> right? That was then. This is now. And... That, that saying uh, sometimes is, is not valid, but sometimes it is, and here it is. They had a unique authority to do that, the apostles did, that we don't have. It's, once again, the signs of an apostle were given among you. Why? So that the church accepts this kind of change in the law. So, uh, visions and leadings may come to us. Uh, I'm not saying they never happen. But we need to not put them on par with the acts of the apostles. The narrative is not normative. Uh, that, that leading that you get might just be a little bit of indigestion. And you need to sort that out. It, it may be from the Lord. That's also possible. But you can't take it. If it tells you to do something against what's in here, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> right? At one point here in the book of Acts, God did make this change. That's something we can't have happen again. And my scriptural uh, proof for that, if you are still needing some, would be Galatians 1, verse 8, where Paul uh, says, don't let anybody else preach another gospel to you. 
even if it's an angel from heaven, let them be anathema. And he repeats it twice. So, no, the written word is the final word. So, gospel life is open to God's leading. We want to continue to be open to being led, right? I think the part of the pattern that still applies to us is seeing Saul going the wrong way, persecuting the church, seeing Peter not really willing to go into a Gentile's house. And we ought to say, okay, there's some expectations that I've got that maybe need to change. If, they're not, if it's not in the Word, it's not contradicting the Word, maybe God will lead me a different way. I need to be open to that, being led by His Word, by His Spirit. Uh, third thing is the gospel life uh, is a life that gives freedom regarding food. And I'm going to shorten this. I had a fair bit here. But there is literally, once again, to say this so plainly seems a bit shocking, but it's true. There's a change in the law. Hebrews 7, verse 12, says this. You have a change in the priesthood. We're no longer under Aaron's priesthood. We're under Melchizedek's. (laughs) Jesus. He's our great high priest now. So you have a change in in the law, too. Uh, Jesus says it in Mark 7. We we read that as well. uh, Purifying all foods. Uh, Paul says it, too, in 1 Timothy 4. Uh, Beware, the Spirit says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. That's interesting. I don't know if he's referring only to the Old Testament ritual laws when he talks about abstaining from food, but he says they're demonic doctrines. That's strong language for saying, hey, God says you can't eat that kind of food. That's demonic God says. Wow. So, um, and you have it also in Romans 14, where Paul is addressing the weaker brother. And he says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. And you've got to watch out for the of itself, of course. But the basic principle is no food is unclean. So, the dietary laws of Leviticus 11 are clearly abrogated. God's people do not have to follow them. Um, And another way to apply this, maybe more directly for us, following bread recipes from Ezekiel, for example, has no spiritual significance whatsoever. and, And you can probably think of other examples like those. Theologically, we are free from Old Testament food laws, Daniel diets, whatever it might may be. Now, what about nutrition, though? right? We shouldn't abuse our bodies with junk. So on the other side of the spectrum, if organic food is healthier for you, does God therefore require you to eat organic food? And I would argue there, and this, this is where this may be more opinion, I don't know. My argument would be no. We are not required by God to find the scientifically healthiest food for you and eat only that. I don't think that's the case. I know I'm on controversial ground here. I'd urge you to consider that that we're reading our modern obsession with nutrition and health into the Bible often. I think we're in in an age these days of nutritional discovery. We're we're learning new things nutritionally. And that's good. I'm not opposed to that. But we need to keep a strong distinction between the theology of it, what God uh, disapproves of, what God's displeased with, 
and what might be more or less healthy. Those aren't, those aren't always uh, a one-to-one kind of relationship. Um, now, another way to come at this is to think about the Levitical uh, chapter that we read and ask, many people think that the clean uh, food laws were God gave because they were healthier for people. And that's where the nutrition thing comes in. I find very little proof for that scientifically. Uh, the Bible doesn't mention it as a reason. Um, and if, if that's the case, does that mean God cares less about our nutrition starting in this chapter of the Bible? Because now we don't have to follow the food laws anymore. So built into that assertion is an assumption that we should keep following the Leviticus 11 food laws, which the New Testament clearly says we don't have to do. Right? Is, is that diet uh, better for people nutritionally? If so, why does God drop the requirement of it? You can ask the same thing about uh, circumcision. Uh, is that better for us medically? Well, then why does God drop the requirement for it? If that is the reason he gave it in the first place. So no, they're not meant for our health. Uh, the clean ritual food laws, they are symbolic of Christ. The one clean person in all of history. Jesus. You have clean and unclean foods and people. You have Jesus, the one clean, and all the rest unclean. They're symbolic of that. They represent God also choosing and cleansing specific people out of all the unclean. That's what's going on. Uh, There's also a theory about what's clean and unclean, and is that the ground is cursed in Genesis 3. This is something else to think about. The animals uh, separated from the ground by their hooves or by chewing the cud, those are clean animals. Uh, it's a symbolic distinction. There, there's a separation from the curse, uh, and that's why they're clean, perhaps. Uh, the point is, it's a symbolic distinction, not a nutritional one. That Jesus, the most pure, became cursed and unclean for us so that we could be made clean and acceptable in God's sight again and be a a worthy sacrifice offered up to him. So that gospel life gives freedom regarding food. Um, Like I said before, we're in an age of nutritional discovery, and that's good. Uh, We know more about food allergies than we used to. I would just urge you to not equate the latest diet fad or the last online article you read on nutrition with God's will. These are things we need to sort out over time. And God's people don't always do that so well. Romans 14 and 15 is a good place to go about the weaker brother. Uh, There were those who thought they could not eat meat uh, in uh, Rome. And Paul dealt with that. And he said that they're the weaker brother. Uh, The same could be true of people who think God is displeased if we consume preservatives or alcohol or crops grown with fertilizer. There's all kinds of opinions like that today. They are weaker brothers who think that the range of God-endorsed eating is much smaller than it actually is, if that makes sense. Even if they're right about what's healthiest for us all. Notice. Their conscience is bound beyond what the Word of God forbids because of custom or caution or erroneous teaching. So, we should deal lovingly with that kind of person, not force them to violate their conscience, but also maintain the truth of what is okay to eat 
rise, Peter, kill and eat, God says, three times. And notice what he says it about, things that would gross me out, right? I I lost the verse just now, but the vision is of reptiles, right? All kinds of animals, birds of the air, and reptiles. Nothing is unclean. Now again, that's a theological point. You can make your own nutritional choices. But God gives freedom regarding food. Last, gospel life is freely given. It's not earned. And you could, you could go straight back to food if you want on this. Are, are you justified before God by the kind of food you eat? Sometimes, uh, no. I heard somebody say no. That's right. So, sometimes, uh, we're in a very moralistic age today. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, and I'm talking about the general culture. It's very, very preachy, very condemning of all kinds of things. That the, that the unbeliever likes to do that with the believer. The, the whole woke movement is a very moralistic movement. The gospel life is freely given. And this is the main distinction. If you want dis- to fight wokeness, as I do, this is where you should go. Not, not to various other arms of the hydra, but to the fact that the gospel life is freely given, not earned. Aeneas was paralyzed. Dorcas was dead. Cornelius needed the vision to hear about Jesus. Peter needed the vision to know that he could cross that Gentile barrier. We are all powerless without God's initiating grace. I'd especially direct your attention to Peter calling and speaking to Dorcas while she was yet dead. What, what a, could you imagine being Peter for one thing? Talk, talking to a woman you know is dead? Did he know at that point already? What was going through his head? Anyway, Jesus called Lazarus to come forth in the same way from the tomb, right? And he came! If you have faith... That to come to Jesus Christ, if you have come, that happened because he called you to gospel life. He gave it to you. Receive it. Live it. Look your Savior in the face. Enjoy your joy and gratitude to him. Uh, there's many times when I love the Heidelberg Catechism, but today was especially one of them. Chat, question 90. What is the rising to life of the new self? And what an answer. You could get all theological about what what it is to be renewed, right? The first phrase, wholehearted joy in God through Christ. (laughs) That's what it is to have new life. I'll close with a, a lovely example of this from The Return of the King the Tolkien third book in the series. And you've got to read the book. The the, the silly movie leaves it out. Read these books. Faramir and Eowyn and Mary, they're all lying near death after the battle, afflicted with the black breath from the Nazgul. And the king comes, and he bends low and he calls Faramir's name. And suddenly Faramir stirred, and he opened his eyes. And he looked on the king who bent over him, 
And he spoke softly, my Lord, you called me, I come. What does the king command? We thanked God in our prayer today for irresistible grace. That's what this is. When the king calls you, you're going to come. And thank God for that. The king replies to Faramir, Walk no more in the shadows, but awake. You are weary. Rest a while and take food and be ready when I return. That's Christ effectively calling us to conversion. And once God provides that power, that direction, we will move. And Faramir's next line is, of course I'll be ready. Who would lie idle when the king has come? Salvation is all of God's grace and power. And then we work out our salvation. Gospel life is freely given. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for raising us from death to life, for making us to walk again, for making us to know your ways once again. To at least in part stop suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Lord, open our eyes more and more to the wondrous things in your law. Thank you for giving us these examples like Aeneas and Dorcas and Cornelius. Uh, Help us uh, to see Peter's change that he made Help us to make those kinds of changes when you call for them, to interact with the unlikely, uh, to bring Christ to them. We thank you that you've uh, given us your word. Help us to rely solely upon it. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the ever-living Lord, and we sing as he taught us to pray. about Cornelius at the Lord's table, we remember that his prayers rose up to God as a memorial. Jesus tells us here to eat this bread and drink this wine as his memorial. The words I say from scripture are in remembrance of me, but they can just as easily be translated as my memorial. Do this, eat this bread, Uh, keep this supper as my memorial. A memorial brings someone to remember something. And keeping this memorial, this feast, every week, it doesn't earn anything with God. Church attendance, Bible reading, prayers, these things don't merit salvation, but they do strengthen our relationship with our Lord. Our faith in Christ and love for Him grow as we do this for His memorial at this table every week. And this table is also our new and transformed food law. It is this table now that distinguishes the clean from the unclean, the believer from the unbeliever, those in covenant from those outside it. So come, for all things are now ready. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, 
by eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in God's sovereign mercy, that you're trusting in Christ Jesus alone for salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord's table. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.